The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The stereotype is that autistic people are these techie, mathy, introverted, quiet people. But I think that what we are really learning is that that's not necessarily true. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. The goal of this show is to increase awareness and cut back on the shame of all things having to do with brain health. And one thing I'm always interested in in particular is neurodiversity. You might remember a previous guest, Dan Bastian, who is co-founder of Angie's Boom Chicka Pop, who said he felt stupid growing up with undiagnosed ADHD. But the shame, the feeling like you need to hide your difference... That's changing. There's real progress, and I'm super grateful. I listen to my own children and their peers talk openly about their diagnoses and their IEPs and their ADHD. Of course, this isn't true everywhere. But in the work world, bold companies are leading by example, and the education field is too. On today's show, we're going to hear three different perspectives on neurodiversity at work. A little later in the show, we'll speak to Emily Kirchner-Morris, who's host of the Neurodiversity Podcast and a mental health counselor for gifted, twice-exceptional, and neurodivergent people. But first, a window into a company that's truly embracing neurodiversity, Procter & Gamble, P&G. We'll start by hearing a little bit of my conversation with Danny Lakes, a P&G manager and software developer, and a man who's on the autism spectrum. I asked Danny about his experience growing up, what he likes about his job, and how the working world is different for him. Tell me what you love to do in your spare time outside of work. So I play a lot of video games, as most people in my generation do. Um, I actually uh, mess around with, um, you know, programming is my day job, but I also do it for fun. And um, I also draw in my free time, um, do a lot of like, sort of like cartoonish style art. Were you into art in high school? Was that something you were always into? Yeah, say art's something that I've done for years now. I started like all the way back in middle school. It was just a really good outlet growing up. Um, say I always felt like kind of the weird kid in class and art sort of like gave me another way to express myself. When you say you felt like the weird kid in class... Like, how did that, how? How did that manifest itself for you? Well, say, I was often sort of singled out. Um, you know, I, I didn't have too many friends uh, growing up. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's just been, it was just really um, difficult to make friends. Um, and I actually... Because of some issues early on in uh, middle school, I actually had to switch to online schooling um, around the uh, sixth grade. 
from there, I did online schooling all the way up until college. So there, there weren't too many opportunities for me to socialize except for online. And art is really the thing that sort of started getting me involved in communities that really helped me figure out who I was as a person. So when did you get when did you get your diagnosis? Your your did you get an Asperger's diagnosis? What was the diagnosis and when did you get it? Yes, exactly. Um and the, when I got it, so as I said, I uh started online schooling in 6th grade, didn't um go for physical class until college. Well, in my senior year of high school, that summer before then, I realized, well, I'm going to be going to college soon. And I actually opted into Ohio's um, post-secondary education opportunity program, which was basically a program for high schoolers to take college classes on top of their high school classes and earn college credits for free. Mm. I'm like, free college classes? Okay, yeah, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Um, So I decided, you know, let's start college a year early. And... I also was realizing, man, I really don't know how to socialize anymore. Not in person anyway. Like I knew how to socialize online, but that's a bit different than face-to-face. So I asked my parents if I could get set up with a counselor. They found someone. She was absolutely phenomenal. And after a couple sessions, she diagnosed me with Asperger's. Did it feel like that made sense to you? It felt absolutely liberating. When she started listing off the common symptoms and, you know, common behaviors. I was just like, finally, I have an answer as to why I'm so weird. (laughs) So it just, it felt good to finally have that sort of answer. And so, and so then what? So then you're like, okay, well, now I have this diagnosis. Did it change your plans, how you approached college? Like what, what happened next after you got the diagnosis? Well, um, after I got that diagnosis, um, my counselor started giving me materials to help me with that. Um, And by that, I mean, she gave me a lot of uh, reading on how to socialize. (laughs) So I always joke, um, say a lot of people tend to, you know, have socializing be just a natural thing for them. It just sort of happens, but they have to study things like math or science or, you know, you know, typical school subjects like that. For me, it was kind of the opposite because things like math and logic always made just absolute perfect sense to me. I could pick up almost anything in my math classes, you know, within seconds, I would understand the concepts, but socializing is the thing that I had to study. So, (laughs) um, from there, you know, once I started learning some of those skills, she said, okay, let's put them into practice. And she pushed me into some events that were uncomfortable for me at the time. Um, like just sort of like found some meetups for um, teenagers and young adults um, for me to go to that, you know, were just opportunities for me to practice socializing. When you graduated college, did you were you interviewing for jobs? How did you end up at Procter & Gamble? Oh, boy, that's a story. <laughs> so it was a bit weird. So out of college, I was trying to find IT jobs. Really, the only work that I could find was contract work, level one IT support, 
know, basic entry level positions, I really wasn't being given too many opportunities to push ahead. And I didn't have too many, you know, local opportunities. So since I wasn't making too much money in the level one field, I was like, okay, let's just find, you know, an even more basic job. I'll use my uh, degree later on in life. And I end up finding a job at Starbucks, worked as a barista for what I planned to be only a few months, but ended up <laughs> being three years. So wow. if you need any advice on coffee, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then after that, I actually managed to find a position with an uh, another IT company. Like the Stars Aligned found a wonderful job. Level one support was paying, you know, you know, more than I was making at Starbucks. And so I left, went there, and I was working there for about, I think, six months when my cousin heard through the grapevine about a job opportunity for Procter & Gamble through a neurodiversity program. Mm. And I remember the night that my parents told me about it because my cousin actually texted my parents first. Um, and I remember I was um, on my computer working on some art and my parents um, texted me, hey, can you come out here? You know, we got some exciting news for you. And I was like, okay, what is this about? So I went out there to talk to them and they're like, so P&G is doing a neurodiversity program and they're looking for people. And I just looked at them. I'm like, P&G, Procter and Gamble. <laughs> like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> like, I didn't have the skill set to work there. That's P&G has a, uh, a reputation and I didn't know if I was going to fit in with you know, what they expect. So long story short, my parents were, you know, managed to convince me, like, just go for it. What's the worst that can happen? They say no. Right. And what's the best that can happen? I was like, okay, fine, fine. I'll go in, try it out. And um, ended up going through the internship that they had. And that's how I ended up here. <laughs> that's amazing. And what do you think, what do you think they knew in the neurodiversity program that maybe other people, other recruiters, other managers didn't know about how to get the best out of you? Like, is, is, there, is there a way that you feel like it's different um, having gone through the internship in a program that is sort of designed differently? Oh, it's night and day, I, I would say. What was really nice is that they took a lot of the concepts that we would need to learn and put it through a method that didn't require heavy technical skills. Because oftentimes, um, you know, people with autism aren't given the same opportunities, not through the fault of anyone in particular, um, but just aren't given the opportunities to develop those skills. Um, because they're, they're, you kind of have to develop them in a slightly different way. So... Through that internship, it was actually kind of funny. There were, um, in addition to the programming that we'd be doing on the job, we actually did some Lego projects and sort of went through the workflow of how things would go if we were on the job, but it was just applied to just little Lego projects. And it was um, building up to where we actually put everything that we learned during that week to actually doing something in the software that we'd be using on the job. And 
it was sort of like combining all that together, but it was, you know, again, done in a way that was a fam- a somewhat familiar um, sort of thing. And then we just were taught the concepts uh, from there. And that's what really helped is having that time to really learn and absorb the concepts. Because there's some things about the business world that, you know, I work level one IT support. You know, I had a glimpse into what corporate life is like, but the reality is there was so much that I didn't know um, when I first uh, started the internship program. And going through um, that sort of internship really opened my eyes and taught me a lot of invaluable skills in how to interact in the corporate world. And unfortunately, if you don't know that stuff right away, because, excuse me, it's it's all related to social skills. Mm. Um, and again, like I said earlier, I had to be like actually taught how to socialize. And if you don't have those sort of basic sort of social skills, people pick up on that and it really lowers your chance of being hired from my experiences anyway. So it was really nice to have an internship program that sort of sat us down and in addition to teaching us technical skills taught us those social skills we needed as well it's kind of interesting like it it sounds like sort of learning how boundaries are different in a corporate sort of relationship driven environment was something that you felt like you really had to learn Mm -hmm. definitely like that wasn't something that i just picked up i Say, if you spoke to my manager, you would um, hear a lot of stories about uh, the things that I've asked him over the um, the years I've been with the company because it didn't stop at the internship. There, there's been a lot of times I've had to ask many, many, many questions about how to do that. It's funny because, of course, I'm reflecting as a, as a, as someone who's neurotypical, um, but I live with someone on the spectrum, you know, but. But I, I can't help but think that like every employee, especially young people, would benefit from what you went through because I think that interpersonal stuff is hard for everyone. We all mess it up. Like it's rough. Yeah. If you have thoughts on that. <laughs> no, see, I definitely do. Like I recognize that because like one of the best examples is, you know, when I was in college, I had to take a public speaking course and my gosh. Public speaking is not easy for anyone, but it's an interpersonal skill. It's something that you really have to learn, you know, no matter who you are. I mean, some people are sort of like natural born sort of public speakers, but they have to still learn how to refine that skill. And it's it's definitely something that I think um, skills like this uh, do need to be taught to many, you know, anyone really, because... That's one thing I've heard is in um, companies that have uh, established neurodiversity programs, they've heard success stories, not just with, you know, neurodiverse individuals, but the managers of neurodiverse individuals end up being better managers in general because they're taught, you know, very specific things on how to organize because people on the spectrum require a lot of structure, you know. So you apply that structure to typical people, suddenly everyone's working better. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I loved speaking to Danny and I wanted to learn more. So I also talked with Todd Balish, who is one of the supervisors in the program that Danny works in. Todd does not identify as neurodiverse, but he wanted to get involved so the program is really all about um, you know bringing people in filling roles within you know within the company with neurodiverse talent you know day to day you know I, I really tend to think about you know recruiting onboarding and then you know retention and and what I'll call the care and feeding of, mm-hmm. of, of a typical career inside of a inside of a corporation as a, an organization indicates that hey you know we've got a role that's a great fit for on the strengths of someone who's you know maybe on the spectrum um, you know we begin to work with them to understand okay well how do we how do we screen people in versus screen people out in the recruiting mm-hmm. process um, you know and then and then as as they're beginning to onboard we're really helping um, the teams understand okay you know what are the activities that they need to do to make sure that they're communicating clearly. It's really about training the neurotypicals on, on how to be more precise with their language and, and, and how to really get the best out of their employees based on their employees' strengths. Um, and, you know, ongoing, right, it's, it's about building that community, the connections, you know, between the neurodiverse individuals um, with the rest of the organization giving them the, the coaching and the language that that you know that is going to make them the most successful version of themselves that they need so whether that's a buddy um you know for like a peer-to-peer type um you know uh coaching or whether it's a mentor um it's you know that's really the day-to-day what have you learned about what works best talk to me about like how you start people off for success in the company you know, I think it, it it's getting clear on what the work is and mm-hmm. being precise in terms of what success really looks like. Um, it, it, that's and and boy, as a neurotypical, I appreciate that too, right? I think we tend to fill in the gaps, um, right? As as neurotypicals, um, whereas I think you know, folks on the spectrum or neurodiverse 
individuals, um, you know, really are, are, are very successful when, when they have that precision. Um, and so I think it really starts there. And does that mean helping managers schedule differently? Does it mean helping them sort of set up success metrics? Like, what does it look like in the day to day? So both of those, right? Yeah. Um, having a very routine schedule in terms of, okay, you know, maybe twice a day check-ins where the expectation is, is at, you know, sometime in the morning and sometime in the afternoon on a, you know, on a very routine schedule. This is, you know, we're going to come together as a team and review the work and review the progress, ask for help, et cetera. But it also, it, it also means very, um, you know, so, so in agile terminology, right, this is, you know, your daily stand-up. Um, mm. Uh, we, we might do that a couple of times a day with the team. Um, but, but in addition, right, it's really, it's getting really, really clear and training the managers to communicate clearly um, and then probe um, whether or not their communication, um, you know, is at the level of precision that's necessary for the team. So let's, let's flip the script a little bit. As, as someone who has been sort of a hiring and training manager of people, especially on the spectrum for a while now, what, would you, what advice would you give um, to someone who is on the spectrum and who's interviewing? You know, I think it starts with um, your strength. You know, the advice I'd give them is that your strengths are your strengths and they're valuable. Companies need sources of talent that have the skills that you bring to the table. Um, and you find, and find an environment who is going to bring the best out. Uh, you know, the best out in you, right? Your success is, is uniquely defined to you and look for, look for an opportunity where that, um, where your strengths are leveraged in a way that, you know, makes you successful and recognize also that, that that's bringing value to the company and the community where you're going to work. I mean, how do you, I guess you could, you could, research the company and and if it has a program or if it has these words on its website, that's a sign. But I would imagine most companies, in fact, I know most companies don't. The whole concept mm-hmm. of integrating neurodiversity into our workplace is kind of new. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interviewing at a small business or, you know, not P&G, are there certain um, words that a hiring manager might use or certain practices that you could look for? Like you mentioned agile. Is, is, do you find that's a good fit um, for people who, who are neurodiverse? Yeah, I think, I think agile is definitely a good fit, um, right? I mean, data and analytics is another, is another area. Those are key words where, um, you know, where I find folks um, who, for, for individuals that I've met on the spectrum, they're really, really good at data. They're really good at, at detail-oriented work. Um, they're, they're generally find satisfaction in, in repetitive work. Now, here's the danger, though, and this is why I'm kind of choosing my words carefully. If you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the autism. Like it's all individuals, right? (laughs) I know. It's like such a it's such a pithy thing to say. It's so true, though. But it's so true, right? You can't you can't create these stereotypes. I want to close by talking a little bit about empathy. Empathy is a big buzzword in uh, leadership culture, you know. But I think it's something that managers have to learn to manage. Does does that make sense? Like, what have you learned about empathy in a corporate culture from your work with these neurodiverse teams? I I think what I've learned most from it, 
I've come to a greater appreciation that people don't think like me. Um, and it, and it's really, really, uh, you look at the world and you think that the world sees the same things that you do. And it takes a, it actually takes a lot of work to, to understand the perspective that, you know, people like Danny, um, you know, they come from just such a, such a different place. And, and it's easy to, to kind of go through the world and we're all busy and we all have lots of, you know, drains on our energy. Yeah. I find that I've had to elevate the dedication of energy, the mental energy that I have to make it, um, a focused and intentional activity to empathize, not just with the neurodiverse people, but with the people who uh, in the company who are interacting with them, whether it's their direct manager or maybe it's an internal customer that they're working with to empathize. Okay, what are they seeing? How, why are they reacting the way that they're reacting? What do they maybe see or not see? How are they feeling um, you know, with this interaction? And it, it, and it, it really kind of just kind of, it, it kind of expands my, my thinking as I engage it's it's but it takes commitment and energy and that that um it's an incredibly useful skill not just to empathize with folks on the neurodiverse spectrum but on on all spectrums of diversity I mean it's funny my my takeaway is that I wish all of these practices sound like they're something that every team should do and that every team needs that's just it that's, I mean, that, I mean, this, this, I've used the term, it, it really raises the bar. The guys, yeah. the guys and, and ladies who are, who are managers of, of these neurodiverse teams, they become rock star managers. They're the kind of people I want to work for as a neurotypical. So it, it really does elevate the, um, it, it really does raise the bar, right? For, uh, for those folks who, who take on these roles. A lot of the acceptance around neurodiversity has to start not just at the corporate level, but across all other parts of society. And a lot of diagnoses happen when we're young. I reached out to Emily Kirchner-Morris, host of the Neurodiversity Podcast and a mental health counselor. She has her own story as well. Emily is a longtime educator and former school counselor, and she works at the cutting edge of advocating for the neurodivergent and their families. Here's my conversation with Emily. What does neurodiversity mean? So neurodiversity is the concept that there are many variations in neurology, in humanity. And many of the types of neurodiversity that are innate and present when a person is born have for a long time been pathologized. But the concept of neurodiversity says that these are at times beneficial and useful for our survival as a species, but also um, have some some benefits and recognizing that different types of neurology, different neurotypes are just some variation in, in how we develop and how we grow. So things like, for example, autism and ADHD and dyslexia. Yes, there are impairments that can come with those, but there are also strengths. And so neurodiversity just kind of works to normalize that concept. Where does um, mental illness fit into neurodiversity? Is it part of neurodiversity? You know, it's an ongoing conversation about 
where mental health fits. Because, for example, depending on who you're asking, and there's no hard and fast list of diagnoses or identifications that fall under neurodiversity. Um, but generally, I mentioned ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dysgraphia. Um, you know, those types typically fall pretty strictly under like the concept of neurodiversity. Then we have um, under mental health things like depression or generalized anxiety, um, you know, some of those things that are maybe perhaps more episodic. Right. Um, however, I would also say that there's definitely some overlap. Like if you had a Venn diagram there, there are some things that kind of fit, it, kind of straddle both worlds. I want to get into your story, but I, I did want to just spend one more minute on on labels and, and diagnoses. It's interesting because I think from a work perspective, neurodiversity is part of this wonderful moment where we're in, in which we're sort of finally saying like, yeah, we're all different. We have different brains and we look different and we sound different and we act different and let's not pretend otherwise, right? right. Um, so so I know that that labeling is is always controversial, certainly among children in the in the sort of neurodiversity community. How do you how do you feel about um about diagnoses and labels as it pertains to the patients you see and, and your own self? Yeah. I was diagnosed with ADHD as a child, and when I was like in my early, well, really when I was in about high school, I'm like, eh, I don't really know if that's an accurate diagnosis. And then I basically went the next 10 to 15 years kind of trying to manage a lot of anxiety and depression and a lot of other mental health type things. And then when I was in my 30s, I went back to my doctor. I'm like, you know, I had this diagnosis of ADHD as a child. And when we began treating the ADHD, a lot of my anxiety went away because it was anxiety about the struggle with executive functioning skills. Having that label and really understanding myself was really empowering. So there are a lot of times that, for example, when parents are going through this process with kids, because I feel like that's really where a lot of this organically is happening in the neurodiversity movement and adults maybe are coming to that diagnosis in, in other roundabout ways. Parents are so worried about giving their child a label or a diagnosis. But what you have to realize is that these kids are already being labeled. Hmm. And not nice has, things sometimes. No, they're being labeled lazy or unmotivated or, um, you know, I don't know, fill in the blank. Right. Not and focused, And they're internalizing those messages. Not caring. Yes. Yeah. Bad student, you know, bad kid. You know, and, and, I, and the adults internalize those things, too, about themselves if they're undiagnosed. So to me, having an accurate label or diagnosis is empowering and it, like, explains some things and it gives you a starting point, like a direction. Here's where we go from here. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about you. I have to say, um, well, first of all, I thought of you yesterday and I thought of our conversation because I saw a tweet um, from my friend Amy Pritchard and it just said, I've never understood the assignment. Yes, I can relate to that. And yes. you, you have said that your sort of mantra when you were in school was just let me do what I want to do. <laughs> Nobody yes. understood why you said that. <laughs> no, I think I first originally said that to my mother when I was about four. Oh, okay. And then, yes, but it carry, it has carried through for sure. So what um, what is your story and, and why do you do the work that you do? 
Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I, I received that ADHD diagnosis as a kid. I was also identified um, as cognitively gifted and was placed in a gifted program. But that was at a time, well, first of all, we now have a term for individuals who are both gifted and have another type of neurodiversity or another diagnosis. And that's twice exceptional. But that was not a term that was used when I was a kid. But it was school was tough. It was tough. My parents didn't know what to do with me. My teachers didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do, do with me, you know, and it was hard. I I think, um, you know, and, and I just, I went into education because I wanted to, I really wanted to make a difference for kids who were like me. And that has now broadened so much to, um, you know, my clinical work as a therapist and the podcast and not just focusing on education and kids, but all individuals um, supporting parents, you know, supporting adults who are neurodivergent and, it's really, um, I don't know, my, my mission, our, our mission for the podcast that I have and, and my mission in general was to work to create a neurodiversity affirming world. And it kind of um, encompasses all of the different aspects of my life. Why does work today need neurodiversity in its talent pool? Well, first of all, there is already neurodiversity in the talent pool. It just might not be True. identified. But when we recognize neurodiversity, when we seek out neurodivergent people in the workplace, they can bring strengths to us that are often getting missed. So, for example, there are a lot of barriers to just getting hired because of the requirements for um, social communication and um, you know, managing anxiety through the hiring process and all of these pieces. But if you could get somebody in the door, they would be an excellent ad addition to a team. And we are missing that because of these other, you know, these, these other protocols or procedures that we've put into place that we just don't even question sometimes. And the thing about people who are neurodivergent is they look at problems in a new and different way, and they're going to bring different solutions to the table. And we want to have that diversity of, of voice and opinion and experience in any workplace. It's only an asset for whatever our goals might be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about, though, um, a lot of your work talks about the... Um, <sighs> frequency, comorbidity, whatever you want to call it, of anxiety and sometimes depression and neurodiversity. Why? Is it, is it your experience that it's sort of baked into who we are? Is it a learned experience? Why do, why do we yeah. feel more anxious and depressed sometimes? Well, anytime you have somebody who is um, kind of that, that square peg that doesn't fit in the round hole, there's going to be some, some dissonance with with how they fit in you know in that in that situation and so somebody who is for example autistic the situations where somebody who is autistic can thrive involve um, clear expectations knowing what to expect um, having that consistency and so when you're in a situation that is very volatile or changes or, you know, those those supports aren't provided, there's anxiety there. Like if I don't know what to expect, if I'm somebody who is ADHD and I'm in a workplace that is expecting a lot of, um, you know, organization or focus or tools, 
um, without providing me any accommodations or supports, yeah, I'm going to feel really anxious because, of course, I want to do well. And many neurodivergent people are doing a lot of work, you know, just to keep up, just to just to kind of, you know, stay at, at the level that is commensurate with with other perhaps um, non-neurodivergent, you know, colleagues. And, you know, that that is anxiety provoking and, and and therefore also can can roll into some depression because what does that mean for self-esteem what does that mean for um you know how we view ourselves and how we feel empowered to move forward in our lives there are just a lot of implications that go along with that yeah you know it's funny and sometimes the examples are so real world a friend of mine who is ADHD you know email is a really hard thing for them mm-hmm. um keeping on top of the email inbox and they uh work in a culture where like keeping your email like responding to email in a very timely fashion is a value in the organization mm-hmm. that's really hard yeah or or i have i have clients who i work with who you know, especially adults who are diagnosed as neurodivergent as, a, you know, when they're older, there's a lot of undoing of internalized ableism that they have to overcome. And meaning that like the expectations that, you know, if you're undiagnosed and you struggle with a certain thing, it's it's all of those messages like I'm lazy, I'm unmotivated, I'm not good enough, I'm whatever. Everyone else can answer these, their email. Why yes, can't I? Right. Why can't you? Why can't you do this? Absolutely. And so then, so we have to undo that and realize, okay, well, this is what doesn't work for me or this is how my brain works and here's what I need in order to meet those expectations. But, um, you know, just talking about the internalized ableism, I, I saw a thing that on Twitter that people were ranting about always, what what, what else is Twitter for? Um, but it was a, it was a picture of like a slide that somebody had been using in a, um, you know, a presentation. And it basically said things that don't require any talent or training or something like that. Right. And it said, it said like being on time or, um, you know, <laughs> you know, um, being, you know, a, a conscientious, I don't know, all of these things that were, again, just kind of this baked into this ableist worldview. Right. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's easy for some people, but there are other people who those things don't come as naturally to. And and that doesn't mean that they are less of value or that they don't have something to add. Um but going going back to the story about the client that I had just real you know real quickly, it's like she's she's struggling to advocate for herself and she is struggling in, in you know and what happens is she's finally getting to the point where she's going to her managers and kind of asking for some accommodations and doing some things, but she's very cautious about disclosing you know her her diagnosis and her label and rightfully so but then what happens is you know she feels like they are condescending or they are um, treating her as less than if she asks for these accommodations it's, it's like a really complicated overwhelming situation for people when employers don't understand what neurodiversity is and how to support neurodivergent people I do think companies want to do the right thing. They want to have the benefits. They want to talk about it. And yet the ideal worker model is still so prevalent, right? Mm-hmm. That if you like actually raise your hand and you're like, yeah, I could use this benefit, you're seen right. as less than. There is a lot of really amazing work in the neurodiversity employment world in the tech fields, because I think that that's just something that, you know, we, we, where we see a lot of that. They're really at the forefront. And somebody was talking about how if we're in a place where we're asking employees 
to to request accommodations, that is a sign that the system is broken because ultimately these are things that are beneficial for everybody. You need a quiet place to go work. Having an open floor plan doesn't work for you because it's hard for you to focus. Well, yeah, you should be able to have access to that. And you know what? There are days if I don't sleep well at night, I'm not going to be able to focus. You know, like the, like totally. there are there are just things that everybody might need. And when we make those accommodations accessible for everybody, it reduces the stigma, and it and it it's just better for for all of the people who are involved in that environment. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of twice exceptional two e. I think it's really fascinating and um, something that probably a lot of people don't even know what it means. Can you tell us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so coming from it's really a term that is kind of originated in the um, educational world, but it indicates somebody who is um, both cognitively gifted, so has has an IQ that is in usually the top. Two to five percent of a of a you know um, based on people their same age. What and number would that be, an, just for listeners? Because I know they're curious. Yeah, usually like a, like a one twenty five, one thirty, yeah, something like that. And so a one thirty is the ninety eighth percentile, and um, one twenty four is ninety fifth percentile on an IQ test. My mother would get I I was one fifty, and my mom would get so frustrated with me because I like failed math, and she'd be like, I don't understand. <laughs> You have 150 IQ. And I'd be like, Mom, yeah, I just Yeah, it's can't. not always about that. I know. I know. Yeah, same. Well, it was like my mom, oh, bless my mother. You know, she was a special educator. And Mine was part too. Of the reason why she kind of knew. Oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so they get it. They, they get, get it, it a little bit more. My mom was like, this is not all adding up because, yeah, I think I was. she requested for me to be tested for the gifted ed program because she's like, this is not normal what this child is doing. Yep. But then she also found, you know, a neurologist to diagnose me. I, I often, I you know, I often wonder also if I were diagnosed today, I suspect that there would have been some serious red flags for some autistic traits, too. I don't think I would ever meet that criteria now as an adult. But you talk about we just that. didn't know much about it, right? You you actually have have written about that 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 sometimes children, especially really bright ones, who get an ADHD diagnosis, might instead uh, present with autism, ASD level one. I guess it is now. Yeah. So what ends up happening is, first of all, people just don't know what autism really looks like, especially in somebody who's very bright. And so what you end up seeing is you see some of like the sensory things that are that look like fidgeting or hyperactivity. But ultimately, there may be more like a, a stimming behavior, which is a sensory like self emotional self-regulation strategy that a lot of autistic people rely on. Um, you might see the lack of focus or poor executive functioning skills, which you know, for an ADHD or really has to do with like they can't regulate that attention for an autistic individual. It's a little bit different as far as um, like <laughs> more just being more interested in the things that they're they're like that are really important to them and having a hard time kind of switching that, you know, and and, and um, transitioning between tasks. So it, it's you have to really dig pretty deep. But um, I find quite often what happens is I'll, I'll have kids who come in with an with an ADHD diagnosis, and as they get older, and we start start to see more of the difficulties with the social communication piece, then all of a sudden we realize like, oh, 
this is probably more, uh, you know, on the autism spectrum as opposed to ADHD or both. Or both. Yes. What what do we get wrong about people with autism? You know, I live with someone who who has autism and um, they are like the funnest, most social, yes. like most in touch, like make eye contact, super chatty, super extroverted. Not that great at math, frankly. Um, so like, yes, what do we get wrong? Well, the stereotype is that autistic people are these techie, mathy, introverted quiet people. But I think that what we are really learning is that that's not necessarily true. But because of the way that the diagnostic process has been developed and because of the fact that most of the research that has been done historically has been done on primarily uh, boys right. <laughs> and 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 young boys who who were more introverted or or had, you know, um, uh, fewer social language, you know, weren't, weren't as driven to to communicate socially, perhaps, is, is a good way to put that. Those are kind of the norms that we've come up with. But really, what I'm finding is that there are just as many autistic individuals who are extroverted as introverted. And what that often comes across as is like maybe somebody who doesn't always understand some of the rules of communication. Maybe they come across as either pushy or just they just don't ever stop talking. They don't like there's no that reciprocal conversation. They can't balance yeah. that. Um, and And sometimes I think that, yes, we have the autistic individuals who are very like lean towards the math side of things. But I think we have just as many autistic people who lean towards the language side of things, which I think is kind of where I always kind of felt like I was actually going to go into the Air Force to be a cryptologic linguist out of high school. Whoa. And but it's it's about looking and, and understanding the language piece. But the people, the autistic people who understand the language piece probably, in my experience, just have that that stronger communication skills so that it doesn't present the same way it, it looks different but then when you again when you dig down and you know what you're looking for you're you can kind of see some of those those signals like like here's just a quick example this is actually somebody who i've known for a very long time and and um, she's now an adult but i worked with her even when she was a student and she'd had a diagnosis of adhd when she was a child and it was maybe her junior or senior year of high school and she was telling me this story about uh, uh, an argument that she got in with her mom about buying a gift for a cousin. And her mom said something like, well, we got we got her a gift. And and my client was like, well, I already got her a gift. She didn't understand the social language component of what her mother was saying, as in we, as in the group of us. And for me, it was like a light bulb went off and I go, oh, my gosh. So much like she's not understanding that pragmatic language, like what what the intent is of that. And she's kind of had some of that that black and white thinking like it's either this or this. It can't be perhaps both. And all of a sudden I started reflecting back on the, the other years of work that we had done. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we missed this. And now we understand it so more, much more. And she understands herself so much more. But it's really just strange how how all of a sudden those things will kind of come up that have maybe been masked for a really long time. I want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing now. Um, one of the skill sets that um, that you 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 write about and, and people in your field talk about is is you know executive function skills and sort of thinking in terms of metacognition. And I'm I'm really fascinated by this. And I, I wanted you to just if you could give us like a thirty second overview of um, 
how what Metacognition is and how your clients basically can get to work helping their executive function skills do better. And and maybe zoom out and say, like, what do we all need to understand about executive function? Because it's important for all of us. Well, executive function is, you know, all of those skills that occur up in the prefrontal cortex, like time management, prioritization, planning, impulse control. And um, metacognition is simply the process of stepping back and reflecting, looking at our experiences and evaluating them and then changing things. So one thing that I think it's important to realize is that people who struggle with executive functioning skills, like, yes, you can build executive function skills, but it's not as simple as like learning to ride a bike or something. It It's a lot harder and often it takes build, putting accommodations around you. So for example, for me, for organization, I struggle with keeping things organized. I'm an ADHD or like I have a lot of things going on. And so I've tried a lot of different organizational systems, but through metacognition, I've been able to step back and evaluate what works, what doesn't. And now what I've realized is I have one planner and it has some folders in it and all of the things go in that one place, all my meeting notes, all of my to-do lists, all of my, you know, everything, because that way I just know it's all in there and it has to be paper. It can't be digital. I have to be able to look at this, you know, it's yep. eight and a half by 11. I have to be able to open it up and look at it, but that's what works for me. And and I have to be able to, though, to realize like what works. And if I find that something isn't working, using that metacognitive process in order to um, step back and and evaluate and and tweak it, make it make it so it will work. How I mean, you're obviously a pro. You have many degrees. Like if a person's listening to this show and they're like, wait a minute, gosh, I feel like I feel like A, I could really use something like that. And B, like maybe this is me. What's the next step they should take if they're a grown up? Well, it you know, it kind of depends on what their intent is. First of all, there are a lot of barriers to finding a diagnosis as an adult, especially if you're somebody who is very able overall and has been relatively successful, finding somebody who understands neurodiversity and can accurately assess and diagnose that can be difficult, which is frustrating. Um, but, you know, if that's something that you feel like would be validating, I would, I would, you know, do some research for somebody in your area and see if you can find somebody who might be able to, to help you with that process. If it's something that you just kind of want to learn more about for yourself, um, you know, doing some research and kind of figuring out, like, what are those tools? What are those strategies? What are the things that can help you advocate for yourself and understand what your needs are? And finding the things that work for you in your daily life can be um, really empowering in and of itself, with or without an official label. Mm. My last question comes back to anxiety and and being neurodivergent. It's a really anxious time for anyone. It's a tough mm -hmm. time. It requires a lot of flexibility and um, a lot of sort of just putting faith in the process, which is hard. Um, mm -hmm. What can managers, leaders, colleagues do to support uh, anxious colleagues who are neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. um, open up the conversation. Be 
authentic about wanting to help and understand um, when an individual comes to you and discloses their diagnosis, you know, or, or a request for accommodations, recognize how much strength that took to, to be vulnerable in that way and understand that, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, because I think sometimes we have this, some of us have this knee jerk reaction to believe that people are trying to game the system or, you know, not do their fair share or whatever and recognize that that is not the case. People people want to do well. People want to succeed. And so if they're asking you for something, if it's a reasonable accommodation or, or even if you feel like it isn't, like talk to them, brainstorm with them. What might work? It's such a simple thing to do. And it's better for you, for your company, for them. Like there's, it's a, it's a, it's a win-win situation for everybody involved to just hear those, those people and, and listen to what they need and, and do what you can to help them. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at Mora AM. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aaron's Mealy.